Good morning. So this morning, um, just kind of looking at this and this uh, continuing on with our, our study through First Peter um, in chapter 3 uh, towards the end here. So let's get started. Let's kind of look through this a little bit and this idea of a way through. All right, so it, it starts off by saying this, verse 13, and who is there to harm if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you shouldn't, for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be in dread, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if uh, God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And so let's remember the context for for First Peter here is to encourage a church that is uh, under persecution. Remember that that we've we've got uh, we've got a guy named. Nero, who's, who's over Rome at this point in time, and he is not a nice guy, and Christians are not experiencing a good time. The, the leadership that they find themselves under, remember, he is literally impaling Christians, dipping them in oil, and lighting up garden parties at night. He's this kind of a guy. He's, he's killed um, his first wife. Uh, he, he's just, he, just the things about Nero are, are just really, honestly, they're disturbing if you read a little bit about what has gone on. And so he is just, uh, Peter is encouraging the church to say, you're under persecution, you're being, um, you're being pressed here, but, but, but God is faithful. And if God chooses to use us in these difficult situations, this is a hard teaching. But if you've been purchased, and if I've been purchased, my life has been purchased, then it's now his. And if it's his, he's honestly free to spend it as he wishes. And the, the, the thing about God is that God is able to redeem what's broken. You and I, we're not able to undo what has been done. We're told like things like not to take life. And the reason that we can't take life is we can't fix it. We can't undo it. We can't change things. We can't go around the, 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 uh, the consequences of doing something like that. But God who's the redeemer of all things and says that ultimate reality isn't here in the temporal, but ultimate reality is with him in the eternal, if he so chooses to use our lives in a difficult way, then it's his to do with. What, what a tough thing. What a, what, what a thing. And so, so Peter is talking about suffering that there's actually a power in suffering and that we know ultimately that Jesus suffered to bring victory over death for us, right? It was, it was the very thing. It's, it's kind of like God is taking and turns the tables on the enemy. What the enemy would, would use for destruction, God takes and works it for the good, where it would appear that the Savior of the world has now died and been crucified, and that it's all over and it's done. He's resurrected. He's victorious over death on our behalf, and God has used what the enemy has determined for evil, and he's worked it for the good. So hard teaching for us, but here it is. It's, it's this idea that says, don't be afraid. 
Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be afraid of what the world has for you. Remember that we're always talking about a remnant of people. The reality of the Bible is, is that it's teaching us that, that actually that believers are few, that we're actually living in the middle of a world and a culture that, is, that has far more unbelievers and those who are opposed to the faith than those who are for it. And so we shouldn't be surprised in a lot of ways when, when we have persecution that comes against us. It, it should actually be something that we are just like, you know what, we were told beforehand that this is the reality of living out our faith, is that we will, can be a people who suffer, um, but God isn't going to waste that. 2 Corinthians 3.12, therefore having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And so the idea here was that Peter says, are you able, are you able to have a defense for your faith? Do you have reasonable conversational defenses for the faith that you're following? Do you know God's word to the degree that you can take somebody and, and explain to them why you believe what you believe? And, and here's the other thing. We've all also got to recognize that, that it's important to be able to do that without necessarily um, talking to somebody who says also that this is their authority. See, if you would have talked to me over 20 years ago and you would have just quoted totally out of the Bible, you would have had no defense for your faith, or told me why you believe what you believe, or how what you believe is good, or how it's for the furtherance or the betterment of everybody, then I would have struggled to have listened to you because I would have said, that's not my authority. It's not the place that I'm living. It's not the thing that I'm under. And so there's an idea, there's, there's a thing called apologetics, which is a defense of the faith. What I've come to find out is that the Christian faith has wonderful reasons for why we believe what we believe. There, there are wonderful things about that. And when we begin to, to um, really look into these things and we begin to unfold and look at what God has in plan, what he has in store, and we start to understand that, you know, what he's talking about when he tells us not to do things is he's telling us to stay free. He's, he's concerned about our freedom. He's a God who says, don't, don't lose your freedom. Don't, don't give up and find yourself in bondage to what you, what you think. For me, in my own life, personally, way back when, I didn't know much about freedom. I knew a whole lot about what I thought was freedom, but ultimately it took me to bondage. See, God tells us things like simple things like just don't lie. And so if we don't lie, we stay free. But if we lie, we just lost our freedom. We sacrificed our freedom for bondage to the lie. Now you gotta remember what you told, who you told it to, you gotta tell more to cover it up, and you have to live with the fear of being exposed for your lie, you just lost your freedom. And so in being able to talk to people and, and say, you know what, those thou shalt nots, those are for our good. Those are to bless us. They're not irksome or burdensome, we're told in 1 John. It's to bless us. It's to help us to live in a manner that brings freedom, not just to us, but to those around us as well. So are you ready, ready in season and out of season to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but how? With gentleness and respect. Why? Because you shouldn't expect the world, you shouldn't expect unsaved people to act like 
they know Jesus. You shouldn't. There, there's, we should be gentle, and we should be patient, and we should be respectful. We, it's important sometimes to understand why people believe what they do. I think part of apologetics is the understanding of why people get where they're at, right? How do you get there? How do you, how do you believe this about life? How do you not believe this about life? How do you believe this about marriage or not believe this? You see, we have to become a people in the church that are able to defend where we're coming from and to talk about why we believe what we believe. See, if you just say, well, the Bible says so. Well, you're talking to a whole world out there that'll just tell you that's not my authority. But if we can begin to talk about life, we can begin to talk about that, that life isn't about what you do. It's not about how long you make it in this world or in gestation. It's about identity. And when do we see identity? We see identity right off the bat. We see identity at conception. Identity in a human being begins at conception. You have half of the genome of mom and dad combining into one new, complete human genome and one cell that sets out to replicate that. What an amazing, miraculous thing and what a great argument for why life begins at conception. So, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We have to talk. The church has been quiet too long. We haven't talked about the hard things in our culture. We haven't talked about the hard things in life. We haven't taught our children the apologetics behind believing what we believe. It's important that we, that we educate, that we get educated, and that we educate, and that we begin to speak into the world around us. Because the world around us is, is lost. They're reeling. They're trying to find meaning and purpose and identity in areas that it will not happen. And so what's the job of the church? Well, the job of the church is to go out and to do that very thing, to proclaim boldly into a world around that doesn't know Jesus the gospel message that God has come, and that he's come for our good, he's come in pursuit of us, that he loves everybody, that there's nobody out there really who's good. There's nobody who deserves salvation. There's nobody who's earned it. There's nobody who's lived the right enough life that it's given simply by a gift to those who will acknowledge their sin and repent from it and turn. And, and, and repentance and, and turning from sin and the pursuit of holiness is something that the church has to get back to because we have to demonstrate to the world that we know something different. My big fear is that the world doesn't see enough different in our lives to believe that we know something that's different, something that's worth knowing. Ephesians 6:19, and pray in my behalf that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, but after we had already suffered and been treated abusively in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God and much opposition. So do you hear Paul and he's talking about the boldness by which he's speaking. That he's, that he's pursuing the gospel. And to be honest with you, as the church, in, the church in general, I'm not talking about us necessarily, but I think we're, we're part of that. We're part of the greater church. And honestly, if we had talked as much about Jesus as we've talked about COVID and politics, the gospel would have went to the ends of the earth already. I'm just telling you, right? 
This is the truth that we've got to get down to talking about what's important. And in an age where there's a pandemic, what is more important and what is more pressing than that the church would talk about the hope of the gospel to the world that doesn't know it, that isn't getting it, that doesn't see it. So, but guess what? Get ready. And I'm trying to ready the church for days of hard times, persecution. I believe with the wholeness of my heart that there is coming a day, and it's coming rapidly, in which there is going to be a price, a price tag for your faith, that you're going to be labeled as being a hater, that you're going to be hate speech, that, that the gospel will be labeled honestly as hate speech. And we have to be prepared to be a people who understand that if you suffer for Christ and you suffer for doing the right thing, okay, then you're blessed. This is what Jesus says, right? That you're blessed. That, that you know, that, that we're, not, we're, not gonna, we're not firing back. We're not, we're, 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 not, we're not trading punches. We're not getting up on the hill with the AR-15. We're recognizing that we have, are a people who have been purchased. And if Jesus' name is attached to your persecution, then you're blessed. And if it's God's will that I be persecuted, then okay. 1 Corinthians, oh, oh, no, sorry, Matthew 5, 10, and 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in this same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they followed my word, they will follow yours also. 1 Corinthians 4.12, and we labor working with our own hands. When we are verbally abused, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not my not there's a good chance, not, well, it could happen to you. No, will be persecuted. This is the reality of it. This is a harsh reality. This is hard teaching. For Christ also suffered for his sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So Christ suffered once, right? For all sin. So we look at books like the book of Job, and what do we see? I don't know what it engenders in you, but in me, it's injustice. I'm like, wow, that guy didn't deserve that. He got a really bad deal, didn't he? He got a tough go. And he was God's righteous guy. God even was like, wow, look at Job. He's my righteous guy. And Satan was like, oh, 
He only serves you and loves you because you give him stuff. And God said, well, let's try it. Here's the parameters by which you can work, but you can't touch him. And so he loses everything, everything, even his family. It's horrible, right? And, and then, and then uh, God it says he doesn't curse uh, God in the middle of that. And then he gets round two. Satan says, comes back around again and says, well, it's because he's got his health and stuff, skin for skin. You let me touch him and, and he'll curse you. And so God was like, okay, well, you just can't kill him, right? And he's struck with a sickness and, and a struggle that is so deep and so bad that even his wife is saying, look, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just get it over with? And Job's like, but, but Job struggles. And we see this whole story unfold where Job struggles through this injustice. And he wrestles with God and he gets upset with God. And, and he, he, he goes through this whole process. But in the end, you know what? He sees God in a different light. And I guess the bigger question today is, do you think Job today, in the presence of God, regrets the circumstances of his life here on earth? And I would say, no, he doesn't. Why? Because now he lives in reality, ultimate reality. He lives in the presence of God, and he gets to realize that the circumstances of his life got to be the determining factors that told all of us, guess what, the nature between God and his people is not based in stuff. And it's not based in the temporal either. It's not just based in the physical realm. It's greater than that. It's bigger than that. It transcends everything about stuff and our health and the temporal stuff that we tend to live on, that it's deeper, that it's greater than that. And Job got to be the guy who settled the question for us. He got to be the guy who, when we are facing struggles and persecution or suffering that we didn't ask for and we don't understand, we can go to some place and say, wow, maybe it's not just my fault. Maybe this isn't the result of something I've done. Maybe God is at work and he's got a bigger plan. And how many countless people have found comfort for their circumstances in the book of Job? And so we have to become a people. The only way that we're going to live this out like this, like the Bible is calling us to do this hard stuff, is to get an eternal perspective. Our perspective can't be in the here and now. Our hope can't be based just in the here and now. So then we end up with this thing here that says this, that Christ suffered once for all, the just for the unjust. What, see, nobody, here's the thing. We look at Job and we think, wow, Job, you experienced this injustice. But nobody experienced injustice on the level that Jesus did. There's never been anything more unjust than the perfect son of God having sin heaped on his soul and paying the penalty for sin. Nothing, ever. There's never been more injustice than that. Nobody has ever suffered to the degree that Jesus did. Jesus is the only person who's ever been truly alone. You and I may have felt alone, but we've never been alone. But he experienced separation from the Father as, as, as the injustice was heaped on him. And what does that tell us? That tells us that this is a God who didn't just relegate suffering to us, but came and suffered on our behalf. And we're to be a people who emulate his life and to recognize that there's a power in suffering, that if God is doing it, that he's turning the tables on the enemy, and if he uses our life in the middle of that, then okay, we have to, we have to come to terms with that. 
And it's crazy, what a crazy thing that Jesus basically proclaimed us guilty and then took his robe off and experienced the penalty that we owed so that he could set us free. He basically, as the judge, as the righteous judge, he said they're guilty, but then he took his robe off and he stood in our place, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. What, a, what an amazing thing. This is the gospel. And it says that he was put to flesh, uh, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight per persons, were brought safely. So this passage right here, uh, a lot of uh, uh, scholars and stuff are gonna tell you this is probably one of the most confusing verses in the New Testament right here. What is he saying? What, is, what happened? Did Jesus, well, part of the Nicene Creed says that Jesus descended into hell. Did Jesus descend into hell? We have different words. We have Greek words. We have Sheol. We have um, Gehenna. Um, we have uh, the Hades. And, and so we're, we're left trying to kind of um, figure our way through this verse right here. And, and what was it that he went and what are these spirits that he went and made proclamation to? Some people say that he went to the days of Noah and offered salvation to uh, those who had died in the flood. I personally don't really um, buy into that because I don't see any other New Testament precedent that would say that there's a second chance. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed that each, each human should live once and after that face judgment. And so we also see Old Testament saints that were saved by faith, Noah actually being one of them. Did he go? Um, did he descend into Hades? There's, there's problems with a lot of these different things. Uh, he told the, the thief on the cross that he would be in paradise with him today. So to be honest with you, I think that that's one that we can sort through. Personally, as I'm sorting through something like this, I try not to bring other verses that aren't clear into it as proofs for it. Um, and to be honest, I try to stay pretty fluid in, in looking at this. So for me, I'm looking at this, I'm continuing to kind of look at this. I'm not dogmatic on this scripture, like this is what happened. Because to be honest with you, I don't know that we're given a lot of enough at this point to be really dogmatic. When it says spirits, Everywhere, almost everywhere in the New Testament that it deals with spirits, it talks about the supernatural beings. It doesn't talk, talks about demons or angels or something like that. It never really attributes spirits, plural, to people. So at, at the end of the day, I just want to tell you that, that I'm working my way through that verse. I don't, I don't have that one figured out totally. I'm not dogmatic on it. I, I believe that because... We, if we get the context, what we're talking about, again, is, is Peter is talking to a church that he's trying to encourage in times of persecution. And now he's using Noah as an example of somebody who stood in total defiance of the culture around him, building an ark when it had never rained. Imagine what people were saying to him, hurling insults at him the whole time. And, and so I think that, and, and the whole world was under the influence of these demonic spirits that had taken it to a place of depravity that God said, we're done. I'm, I'm leveling this thing. I'm, I'm gonna bring a flood. I'm gonna destroy 
a whole lot of, of almost everything except Noah and his family. And so did Jesus go and say, hey, I won, you know, to the spirits that were in prison there? Um, I don't know. That's a confusing. There's a lot of different things with that verse. Um, certainly be interested to talk to anybody, hear your thoughts on it. But to be honest with you, I'm keeping it at this point kind of fluid as I kind of move through that and studying that. And here's the other thing. There's a lot of really great Christian people out there that hold differing views on that verse and on different points of the Bible. So again, as we talk about our faith, we want to do that with gentleness and patience and kindness, right? So what a cool thing. It says now, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good, for a good conscience. Real quick, um, it, it's this idea that um, does, does baptism save us? Some people will say yes, right? But I think that Peter makes a great distinction for us. And what a cool thing that we actually have a baptism here today. I love how the Holy Spirit works these things. Who knew that we were going to be right here when we were set up this baptism? But here we are. And it says this. It says that, um, is that, is that the baptism, corresponding to that baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So it's not this outward thing. I tell people, without Christ, baptism is just a really bad bath. That's all you're going to get. It's, it's, it's nothing. It, baptism is a picture, just as, as, as Peter is using it here, as that it's the ark. It's the ark that takes you through the waters, but there's a baptism that you need, and that's a baptism into Christ, a, a, a complete immersion of our lives into his and that's the baptism that really saves us. And the baptism that we're about to do now, right after the last song here, is a picture. It's like, it's a public proclamation. So Barney, our friend in Kathmandu, whenever they do baptisms, and remember, every baptism that he does, he faces five years in prison for doing it. Every time he does a baptism, five years in prison is his potential sentence. And they spend four days trying to talk people out of getting baptized. And then they figure at the end of that four days, if you still want to get baptized, we'll do it. We're going to baptize you. And they baptized like 97 people last year, right? The reason that they spend so much time is that that is the point of persecution for them. That's the place where it begins. When they make that public profession of their faith, they lose jobs, they lose family, they're persecuted, they may, they may suffer physically. So they're like, hey, it better be real. It needs to be real for you before you take this step. Because he's in a Hindu culture. Hinduism has 330 million gods and goddesses. There's a god and a goddess of everything. It's no problem for a Hindu to add Jesus to the list. It's like, yeah, sure, no big deal. So they, have, they spend a lot of time trying to talk people out of baptism. <clears throat> but then they do it because, because it's the point. So, so Peter here is talking about, and he's encouraging people to get baptized. Do it. Don't be afraid of what they're going to do. Don't allow the persecution to, to stop you in this. 
Remember that it was a remnant and that Noah, he faced, he, he faced it in his day just like you're facing it in your day. That, that he was, he was uh, you know, people were laughing at him and saying how foolish he was and how dumb he was and all of these different things. He faced that in his day. It's not just you now. And so this is an encouragement to the church, and I think it's one that we need too because we need to recognize and we need to be ready for the days when it gets hard because the days that it gets hard, we need to recognize that it's not just hard now. As a matter of fact, we actually, as American Christians, probably live the easiest Christian existence that almost anybody in the church has ever lived. But I believe those days are coming to an end. I believe that those days are going to get more difficult. And I believe that there's going to be a real division in the church between the real church and a church that's an apostate church. And that's a biblical thing that's going to happen. And so um, we want to be ready for that. Romans 6, 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, baptism is a public proclamation that you're identifying yourself with Christ and his church. It's like the, it's like the marriage ceremony, right? You've already a, there's a relationship that's already there. It's, it's this ceremony that says we, we, we've already are, are committed and in love with one another, and now before God and everybody else, we're going to declare that this is who we are and what we stand for. And, and so, but this, again, is this idea of having been buried with him, and this is what baptism represents. It's a picture of having been buried with Christ, and you could even use the water as the idea of, of washed and cleansed with our sin and then risen and resurrected up and into new life with Christ, that we become a people who recognize that our home isn't here. This isn't our home. This isn't our final dwelling place. This isn't what life is about. Life is about a bigger picture. It's about eternity with God, and the stakes are high. We're talking about people, and we're talking about whether they make it there or they don't, and we're talking about the high privilege and the high calling that the church has to go out and to make disciples, to teach, to educate, to baptize, right? This is how important baptism is. If you've not been baptized as a believer, you should consider that because it's not really an option. It's really a point of obedience. Now, does it save you? No. And I'll tell you why I don't believe it saves you is because the, the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, he didn't get to get down and get baptized, right? But Jesus told him, you'll be with me today in paradise. But that's just, that's not the picture. 3,000 believed on the day of Pentecost, and they were baptized that very day. It was very much the, the, the practice of the church to believe and be baptized. Belief preceding baptism, though. So, um, those are just some thoughts. We are going to do a baptism here in a minute, and um, let's just, I just want you to pray about about taking some time, maybe get in God's Word, maybe do that year in the Bible thing. Prepare yourselves. Right Now Media is a great resource. There's a lot of apologetic stuff, guys like Ravi Zacharias and just really smart guys, way smarter than me, um, can help us to know how to defend our faith, how to talk to people, and how to talk to people in gentleness and respect 
and, and, and these kinds of good things because it's important. And, and we got to be the church. We've got to begin to have a voice in the culture around us. We've been quiet too long. All right, I'll quit. I'll be quiet. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you know us. We thank you that you gave yourself, that you allowed yourself to suffer injustice and persecution on a level that we can't even imagine. And you did it so that you could purchase us. And now you've given us a charge. You've given us a life to live in this world. And and as we do that, the idea is that we would emulate your life that we would understand that if you call us into a ministry of suffering or, or persecution, that we're trusting you, that we're knowing and understanding that there are greater things than this world, that there are larger things, and that our trust in you, our hope in you is, is, is an eternal thing. It's not a temporal thing. It's not just about stuff, and it's not just about our health here. It's about the greatness of who you are, and it's about where we'll spend eternity. It's not just about where we spend eternity either. It's about having a heart that wants to see everybody to spend eternity in heaven with us and you because, um, Lord, your heart says that it's your desire that all would turn and be saved. So, Lord, help us in this time. Help us to, to kind of peel back some of the layers, some of the things in the culture that have affected us, that have given us an unbiblical view of the world around us. And help us, Lord, to just to believe in you, to believe what you say, to look at some of these tough teachings and say, okay, Lord, you've called me to it. And if you've called me to it, you're going to carry me through it. And to believe that with the whole of our being. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.